Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, y'all. I am so excited to tell you about today's podcast sponsor. I was introduced to Rovectin Brand, which is a Korean beauty brand, a few months back. And being a huge product person, I'm a little bit gullible and love to try new products, but I was a little hesitant until my friend said that it absolutely would change my skin. And I love it. It has clean ingredients, vegan and cruelty-free, of course. But what's really fascinating is its story. Rovectin was started as a skincare line to help people who had gone through skin deterioration because of chemotherapy. But they also learned that the same formula was helpful for people with any kind of sensitive skin type. Rovectin comes from the Latin word reverti, meaning to go back to where it was. So as they focus on restoring the skin barrier to its naturally healthy state, I focus on restoring your body to its natural healthy state. So it totally made sense for me to fall in love with this. I feel like we're on the same vibe and it really worked. I use my favorite product is this multi-oil advanced formula and I've used it on my face. And I swear my face feels like a baby skin now. And what's interesting is I don't have to use as much oil as I used to because I feel like this Rovectin really helped me to restore that natural healthy state. It feels so good. And I also use a cleanser in a way that I hadn't really used cleansers before because it doesn't feel like it dries me out. So I would love for you to go try out Rovectin. I highly recommend it. You can find it at Rovectin, R-O-V-E-C-T-I-N.com. And use code LIT15 to save money. I can't wait to hear about what you think about Rovectin. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have Ryan Andrews, who is really quite an amazing and well-educated individual. We're talking about the body, the mind, movement, and diet. His career is super impressive. He started off as a nationally competitive bodybuilder for five years. He has an undergraduate degree in exercise science and two graduate degrees, one in nutrition and one in exercise physiology. 
He also completed his training to become a registered dietitian at Johns Hopkins Medicine and studied sustainable food systems at Columbia University. He's a registered yoga teacher, yay, and a movement and exercise coach. We talked today about his five recommendations for helping you build a better body and a better planet, and it's not what you might think in terms of building a better body. It really takes into consideration nutrition, wellness, movement, and the impact that our choices have on the planet. He's written a book called The Swole Planet and has generously offered a discount for all of you. So make sure you check out the show notes. Please enjoy my conversation with Ryan today. Welcome, Ryan. So happy to have you on here today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Caught you (laughs) mid-sip. Yeah. Well, first, I just want to mention that you have quite the impressive resume. And I mean, you started off as a competitive bodybuilder. You have an undergraduate degree in exercise science. You have two graduate degrees in nutrition and exercise physiology. You are completing your training as a dietitian. You have a sustainable food system you studied at Columbia University. I mean, you are it, you are a lifetime educate, education specialist, and you also are a registered yoga teacher and exercise coach. So I guess I want to launch in by saying, where did all of this passion begin? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I definitely have different chapters of my life and, and what I've learned. So it, it began when I was 14 years old, uh, pretty clearly with competitive bodybuilding. And I grew up in a family where... You know, we didn't really think or talk much about anything related to our health and movement and nutrition or anything like that. So to discover this new world of, wow, I can change what I'm eating and I can change how I'm moving and that can influence how I'm feeling and my body composition. That was this, uh, it was like magic. I I couldn't believe you could do this. And as I really immersed myself in competitive bodybuilding, uh, when I had the opportunity to actually study the different aspects of movement and nutrition, I, I knew I had to do that. And that's really what my life after competitive bodybuilding was, was trying to gain as much education as I possibly could. So I'm imagining in the bodybuilding world, not to make assumptions, but from my own experience of having some bodybuilder friends back in the day, that nutrition is not always well understood in terms of, you know, building blocks for the body, and you've got to have all this protein. And um, what were you? What was your initial entry into understanding nutrition as a bodybuilder, and how did that change? Your assumptions are fair, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, bodybuilding is is an interesting group and culture. Uh, a lot of what's practiced at least when I was doing it competitively, was uh, rooted in uh, kind of passed down information over the generations. Mm -hmm. You listened to what your coach told you to do and you did that and you didn't ask questions. It wasn't necessarily best practices rooted in the latest and greatest science. Um, Some of them would, would parallel what the science was saying, but sometimes it just... Didn't make it. It was like a cookbook sense. that had just been passed on. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And so uh, there, I mean, bodybuilding was uh, brought some of the highest highs and the lowest lows. It 
it's it's definitely not what I would consider to be a group of well-rounded, healthy individuals in general. Uh, there are some aspects where they're doing a great job, but I think overall it it's it can be pretty damaging. And that's what I started to realize. And I thought, if I can't do this for my livelihood, I need to probably get out. It's not going to be a good thing for myself long term. And what aspect was it? Was it joint issues? Was it food issues? Was it overall kind of scaling up and then dropping down? Like I, I know that there's a lot of kind of pre-competition. Um, I don't want to say starvation, but was it the whole um, ethos of it, or was it was it body and nutrition, or all of it? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, nutrition was really there were two gears, and it was either gaining as much muscle mass as possible in the off season and then getting ready for a contest it was losing as much body fat as possible so it was very much living in the extremes and it's hard to figure out how to actually eat and pay attention to your body cues when you're in that world and then yeah from a training perspective it's very high volume training uh, high frequency training so uh, you can you can put a lot of stress on on your joints um even at the age of 20 when i was phasing out of bodybuilding i was already starting to feel some injuries at that point, which is quite young. So yeah, all right. Because you're loading, it doesn't matter how young you are. If you're loading something beyond its capacity over and over again, there's, there will be some, some time of, you know, cellular or bigger damage. I I do think some body types are probably better suited for it. I I don't think I I naturally have a body type that was meant to be a high level competitive bodybuilder. Um, I'm a little bit ectomorph-ish, like longer, longer and lankier naturally. So to put on a lot of body mass was didn't feel good for me. I just didn't feel great. And I felt a little bit out of, uh, out of condition and my heart was having to work a bit harder and things like that. Mm-hmm. So what was your next phase of a movement practice that you discovered that was a natural transition from bodybuilding? Well, the nice thing is I, w- I was able over the years to transition a bit into more of a healthy strength training kind of routine. And beyond just balancing out my strength training, that's when I discovered all the wonderful world worlds of movement, like just going outside and taking walks and hikes. Um, that's when I discovered yoga. Yoga was actually a really important part of my transition away from the competitive bodybuilding mindset. Because I, I remember the first time I went to practice yoga, there were, it was a studio with no mirrors. And it was all about not focusing on what everybody else is saying or thinking or watching and what they have to say about you. And it was very much about being on your mat, listening to your body, paying attention how your body felt, making adjustments uh, accordingly. That was exactly what I needed because bodybuilding was don't pay any attention to how you're feeling, just get through it. And it's all about how you look in the mirror. So it was a nice um, uh, opposite kind of approach with how my does one movement. go from that? How did you how did you connect those two dots? <laughs> well, it, I was ready to connect the dots, I think, mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on where I was at uh, just mentally and physically and kind of trying to figure out how to live and how to move and how to eat and function, not as a competitive bodybuilder. It was a welcome path for me at that point. Mm. And so when did you get into more of the food, understanding food uh, process, programs, nutrition, et cetera? 
Yeah, it was a it was a gradual uh, perspective widening that happened over the years. Obviously, when I was in the world of bodybuilding, it was it was a pretty narrow perspective. It was about eating for my physique, and I, I remember the first time it really started to expand was in graduate school, so early twenties, and uh, I was learning more about uh, animals in the food system and. That was my kind of my gateway into thinking about anything beyond my own health, really, in the food system. And what I started to learn about how animals were treated really made me um, frustrated and upset. And that just led to focusing on everything else, farm workers, ecosystems, and really the entire food supply chain. So in the coming 15 plus years or so since then, it's just been trying to widen that perspective through education, through spending time on farms and um, trying to figure out what we can actually do with our eating that not only benefits our, our own health, but the health of the planet and the entire food system. I'm curious in graduate school for nutrition, is, is animal welfare or the environmental impact at all addressed or is it really more the math? What I found and this is obviously not you know, all nutritionists, but there's a lot of this um, narrow mathematical um, approach. This is the protein. You need this amount of grams. And here's a list. And I, you know, there was not any kind of infused like, well, what would be the most optimal form? How can you substitute this form of protein with a non-animal protein? Did you get did you get any of that information or was that not addressed at all in in school? Uh it, it was a little bit. I mean, I I was going through graduate school for nutrition many years ago now and my dietetic internship. And I know some of the programs have changed for the better since then, from what I've heard. But it it was weighted towards once I swallow this food biochemically what's going to happen. And it wasn't um, more of a kind of holistic or integrative type of uh, approach to eating. Mm -hmm. Not every, there were like sprinkling, a little bit of sprinkling of that occasionally, but it wasn't like the foundation of the, of the curriculum in the program. So fortunately, as I uh, was discovering these other things, I kind of forged my own path a little bit in terms of trying to bring some of that in. I didn't do a great job because I was pretty young still, but it got a, it got better over the years. So you have now developed this path. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your mission is um, before we kind of go into, you know, some dietary adjustments and your your book that you've written? But what was your mission after you've gotten educated, had your own life experience with it? What is your mission now, and what was it then? How has yeah, it changed? Yeah, I mean, quite simply now. I would, it's always funny. I always try to think about how I can be concise with how I say That's this without thing, boring right? somebody. You yeah. have 30 seconds. <laughs> I know, I know. It is the hardest thing to describe. But, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, uh, it really comes down to trying to uh, end suffering in the food system, I would say. And mm. I, I, our, our food system right now is leading to a lot of suffering, whether it's chronic disease on our own health, whether it's... Um, poor treatment of workers on farms and meatpacking, whether it's poor treatment of animals in the food system, whether it's entire ecosystems. So there's just a lot of suffering coming from the food system, related to the food system. And I 
I don't think we'll ever completely be able to eliminate it, but I, I really think there's massive room for improvement. So massive. That's, that was, that's my mission right now. Well, that's a beautiful mission. And, and what I really, um, where I see you can be successful is from your own knowledge base, your own education, you can really uh, answer some of the questions that will be commonly you know, asked. Uh, for instance, you know, people when we want to, when we're trying to transition over to a plant-based diet, people will wonder about the nutrition of it. And then you're like, you've got the answers to that. They'll say, well, what about the farmers? You know, and then in a way, this is what I do want to talk about because I do think people don't understand the misery and suffering that happens, you know, in the in the human animals as well. Yeah. Um, so can you speak a little bit about that? How our food system is really not good for any being. Yeah, I mean, specifically to the people working in the food system, uh, in its entirety, the food system is a massive part of our our economic system in the U.S. Uh, I, I tend to focus a bit more on farms and meatpacking more than like restaurants and things like that. Um, with farm workers, you have a situation where the vast majority are uh, immigrants. Um, they're not in a position where they can speak up about mistreatment or low wages because they'll be sent away and somebody will fill their spot. Uh, wages are very low. They're not getting any kind of benefits. They are in conditions where they're um, exposed to heat so they can have things like kidney problems and dehydration and heat stroke. They are in fields often that are being sprayed with a lot of chemicals like pesticides, for example, and that can lead to both short and long-term complications for these workers. Because oftentimes, I think when we're thinking about our own nutrition, we think, yeah, it's probably a good idea to minimize our consumption of these pesticide residues on foods. And that's great. But if you're working on the farm, I mean, you're exposed to them hours and hours every day, days and weeks and months and years. Um, so the chemicals present a big issue. And really, it's, it's, not, it's a job that's um, not well respected in this country either. We don't look at people working on farms and think, wow, look at the amount of skill that goes into to growing these foods, harvesting these foods, maintaining these crops. And it's just kind of a forgotten behind the scenes job. And it's it's really prone to a lot of different uh, abuses. And how about like in the meatpacking industry? Yeah, meatpacking has been uh, particularly troubling. Um, well, I don't even know, know if I can say that. It's been highlighted more over the past couple of years because of the, the other risk related to um, acquiring um, COVID. But you're working in conditions that uh, have very fast line processing speeds and uh, injuries and um, other problems related to the processing speeds can happen. So there was a report a couple of years ago by OSHA and two amputations were happening every week in U.S. meatpacking plants. So amputations can be everything from uh, losing a fingertip or a finger or much more drastic than that. So on average, two amputations a week were happening in U.S. meatpacking plants. It's one of the more dangerous jobs. And similar to farm workers, poor wages, often immigrants, so they can't 
say anything. They have no authority. And uh, it's it's a really miserable job. So I, I also kind of get frustrated when people say, well, what about all the jobs in, in the world of industrial meat production and meat packing? Well, they're, they're terrible jobs. They're not jobs we want to keep. I mean, these are jobs we, we, we want to transform and reimagine uh, with our food system. Mm, I love that. And how do you feel like this, I, I think, open-mindedness inquiry is related to movement practices, specifically yoga? Because, you know, I think the big elephant in the room is there are a lot of yogis that are practicing who don't at all uh, consider this ethical eating or choices they make in consuming animal products or other products that have a, a less ethical um, origin. How did you start to, or how do you bring those two ideas together that they really can't really have one without the other, in my opinion? Yeah, they, I mean, yoga and and ethical eating go together really well for me. I mean, from just the idea of, of the oneness of yoga um, and our connection to all beings. And then the one that, idea that's always really resonated with me is non, one of nonviolence. And uh, whether, I mean, the beautiful thing is you can extend that to so many aspects of nutrition, whether it's nonviolence towards yourself and not doing restrictive fad diets nonviolence towards animals in the food system and minimizing or changing where you get your animal products and then all the human workers in the food system trying to get more organic food, not necessarily because it directly benefits you, but because the farmers working on organic farms won't be exposed to as many chemicals. So that it all kind of extends along that that branch of thinking with with oneness and nonviolence. So what are um, five dietary adjustments that you think help build a better body and better planet? Yeah, after many years, these are the big five uh, <laughs> that, I, that I landed on. Uh, and, and so far, I, I feel really good. I'm always looking for how these could maybe break down and not make as much sense, but I feel pretty good about, about them. So the first one is find your minimal effective dose of animal products. Uh, I'll give you maybe one or two lines about my thinking around it, and then I'll move on to the next one. So with with animal foods, uh, it's close your eyes and point to anything in the food system, and farm animals are likely related to it in some fashion. Um, land use, inefficiencies, water use, waste production, greenhouse gas emissions, zoonotic disease emergence, antibiotic resistance. So we really need to uh, figure out uh, how to do farm animal production in a more sustainable and humane way. Uh, the second is minimizing wasted food. We waste about one third of all food produced. And uh, this is a big problem for, for two reasons. One is uh, when we waste food, we waste all the resources that went into producing that food. So all the water and labor and energy. And the other big problem is when we send food to a landfill, it breaks down and releases greenhouse gas emissions and not a trivial amount either. Uh, the third is supporting sustainable farms. We've, Can we back up for a second? Yes. How do people eliminate that waste? Because I, I think, I, you know, compost obviously, but how, how does one eliminate it on a bigger way? Like, you know, restaurants or grocery stores, something expiring and they just throw it out. Um, what are, do you have any suggestions for tips on how to, how to approach number two? 
Yeah, uh, I I spent some time uh, with with some nonprofits in Massachusetts who made it their mission to recover food that is going to be thrown away by grocery stores and certain restaurants. And I, I do think this is an effective way to minimize food waste, especially from those locations, because uh, it is a big problem, especially from grocery stores. And a lot of grocery stores still get really worried about um, liability. So if I give this potentially expiring food to somebody and they get sick, they're going to sue us. But there's actually a law that was passed back in 1996 that protects uh, grocery stores uh, when they do donate food. So I think nonprofits recovering this wasted food is a, is a good way to prevent food waste and they can give it to food banks or however they want to distribute it. I also was really impressed with a program in Massachusetts called the uh, Boston Area Gleaners. So gleaning is basically a farmer who has a crop that they can't do anything with. Maybe there's just not a market for it or it's just about to go bad or something. Weather's going to change. They can bring in gleaners and the gleaners come in and they harvest the crop and they can go bring the crop to a food bank or food pantry or somebody who needs a nutritious food. So instead of letting the crop just rot in the field, you bring it, bring the nutritious food to somebody who needs it. So I think those are effective strategies in terms of grocery stores and on farms. And then there's all sorts of different things we can do in our own lives to minimize food waste. They're also important. Okay. So you were going on number three. <laughs> yeah. Number three, uh, support sustainable farms. And we talked a little bit about this already and from a, from a farm worker perspective. Um, we're not going to be able to feed ourselves unless we feed and build our soil. And farmers are soil managers and water managers. So if they can farm in a regenerative way that, that builds soil instead of just depleting it over the years, that's a great thing for a, a resilient food system mm-hmm. moving forward. Uh, the fourth one is eating a wider variety of minimally processed foods. Uh, if you look at the average American, more than half of the food they're consuming is ultra processed food. So the, the most <laughs> processed of the processed foods. Um, and that's not only harmful for our health and disease risk and body composition, but these foods tend to have uh, added sugars from sugar beets, sugar cane, uh, palm oil, and crops that can be pretty harmful towards ecosystems. And the other side of that one is the variety aspect. So we eat a very limited variety of foods in the United States, just really a handful make up the bulk of our calories. And if we can eat a wider variety of foods, it's generally good for our health. It's generally good for uh, pollinators and it's generally good for soil microbes. So it's like this trifecta of sustainability and health. Uh, and then the last one is minimize single-use plastics. Uh, we just continue to produce more and more single-use plastics. And it's a very linear model of just production down to disposal. And we don't have a good way to recapture it and recycle it efficiently. And when you don't have a good way to recycle it, it just escapes and ends up in water bodies and all over the place, creating a pollution burden for all different species. And it's, it's really become a problem for, for the health of all species on the planet. I know. I wish we could come up with some, some you know, legal action on that because as long as they're available, the single-use plastic, people are going to just use them. It's just, it's a habit. It's easy. Um, and, and we kind of need to stand behind, especially those stores. There are stores out there that do not use 
Um, even though there's still single plastic containers within the store, but they're at least not using the single plastic use of the, of the bags. So supporting them is really helpful because it is more expensive for them to you choose not to do that. Yeah, I mean, supporting uh, stores, organizations, grocery stores that are making these changes, I think is really helpful if you're able to, if you have the, the bandwidth. And, because, I mean, sometimes some of these small changes, people think oh, that's like, really, what's that going to do? But I always remind myself that systems are made up of people. So if we change, the system can eventually change. So our our choices do matter. And I, I do think we're at a time where I would love to wait and say, well, we're going to have these top-down changes and it's going to shape the path and everything will be really easy and streamlined. I hope that happens. It probably needs to happen. But in the meantime, any kind of bottom-up change we can make uh, is going to matter. I agree. I think with all of these movements, um, individuals are so much more significant than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. Because you never know the, the ripple effect you can have from your family to your friends, to your community and outward. And um, even if you're never aware of it, even if you wouldn't know it, the benefits of another, you know, a generation to go, you're you're doing your part, and that that in itself should feel just satisfying and good to know that you're participating in any small way to improve that. So I find a lot of similarity between. Did you have another one, or was that five? Those are the those, those are, are the big five, five right? dietary okay. adjustments. Yeah. So I I, I feel there's um, similar, like you were saying, our diet is very limited. And that just reminded me of what I talk about a lot in movement, that our movement um, variability has really decreased in this modern day lifestyle. You know, it's like you could almost kind of track somebody if you had like a little GPS and it would probably be kind of the same perimeter. Maybe if you're, you know, in today's world, who knows, but you might be getting up, going to work, going to a desk, getting out. Maybe you're, maybe you're going to the gym, but it's like, there's a lot of sagittal plane movement, not a lot of variability. And similar to kind of overdosing in the processed foods, it's not great for the body. It's not great for your systems. It's not great for your brain. I mean, your brain is like super bored if you're just doing that all the time. So I would love to hear how you um, how you think adjusting our movement and our workout programs not only can help us individually um, expand, but how it can also help the planet. I think a two main uh, practices or adjustments we can make. And one of them may be more obvious, one of, one of them not so much. So the more obvious one is using your body uh, purposefully to get around whenever you can. So uh, transportation is a really big factor in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So if we can somehow use our own body through walking and cycling, uh, it's, it's a wonderful win-win scenario. Uh, generally good for our health, assuming, like you said, it's not too repetitive and you don't get overuse injuries or something. Um, but generally, uh, you get out in your community and you also are, are helping the planet. And the other big one that I, I think people don't often think about is uh, volunteering. I think I, when I coach clients, I'll often suggest that one of their you know, workouts for the week is volunteer day. And it's a good way to get some active recovery in, especially if you do it at a garden or a farm or something outside. You're moving your body maybe in a new way. You're lifting, you're lunging, you're rotating and doing all these things you don't usually do. Uh, plus, you're 
maybe helping to um, build the community, contribute to a farm that produces sustainable foods. So I, I do think that's another thing to explore that has that nice win-win uh, arrangement. I love that idea. I never actually thought about the possibility of volunteering at a farm. Um, so I'm going to try that this summer if we're allowed to. That That's such a great idea because you're right. It's like, I don't know how to grow something, but if somebody's directing me and helping me um, and I'm helping them, uh, that that's that's a real win-win. I love that. Thank you for that suggestion. And I yeah. love the idea of transporting ourselves. My husband and I biked across country many, many years ago. And we got back and we were like so used to doing average 70 miles a day. We were like, we're going to bike everywhere. So we did it for a while. We took our burley. We went to the grocery store. And then you just get back in the, the kind of swing of suburbia and everything is really not convenient. So, um, but I do think when you have that dedication to where can you take yourself, whether it's walking or biking, um, it you you're getting you can look at it like you're getting your movement in and and you're also helping the planet by not just getting in the car um, if you're lucky enough to have a car and just going um, in that more it's certainly easier and cost you know time efficient but it's a wonderful way to think about implementing you know good movement and um, support for the planet. Yeah. Now, how do you think of practicing yoga? I mean, I know I have some ideas about it, but how do you think um, practicing yoga can help improve the food system? Um, so, I mean, we touched on it a little bit earlier, how some of the beliefs uh, in the world of yoga with oneness and nonviolence can help. And I mean, I, I spent a few t um, the last few years doing more trauma-informed yoga instruction and mm -hmm. working with folks who've gone through a lot of trauma who have some mental health challenges. And what I've really noticed is that practicing yoga can be uh, something that helps contribute to somebody's overall mental health. And I know this from my own life. Yoga has been a really important part of my own mental health. And mental health is one of those things that if, if you're not in a great spot mentally, it's tough to thrive in other areas. <laughs> so yeah. um, I, it's one of those foundational, foundation of the pyramid kind of things. So if yoga, practicing it regularly could help you maintain better uh, mental health, then maybe somebody's going to be in a better position to make choices that do support a more ethical and sustainable food system. It's If somebody's really struggling, it's tough to expect them or ask them to um, free up a bunch of bandwidth to go and make these choices and shop for these products and consider these items and cook these foods. And that's asking a lot if somebody's not in a good spot. So I think if, if yoga can help contribute to one's overall mental health, I see it as then helping with uh, really anything else they want to end up doing. I think that's really a beautiful and empathetic point is that, um, yes, having any kind of mental health imbalance is, is really exhausting. And it's it's very hard to think outside of the the suffering that you're going through, thinking out how how you can contribute in you know to less suffering outside of yourself, much much less inside yourself. So you got to start there for sure. What are some of the bigger um, kind of boundaries that you find you've had with clients? Aside, let's assume that it's not a mental health one um, in terms of being open-minded 
to try and eating in a different way, in a more sustainable way, in a more ethical way. Hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, would you say the whole protein myth, do you, do you face that much about like, oh, I need to have animal protein to build muscle or I need more protein than carbohydrates, like these kind of um, fad-ish type things, but they, they're recycled. I don't think they're ever buried. They, um, some kind of, you know, the Atkins diet, of course, was decades ago, but it resurfaces in different forms. Yes. So... Uh, a, a couple of thoughts. Uh, as as you asked that question, I was through my head going, kind of going through my five adjustments and thinking of the different <laughs> things I've heard in relation to them. So um, I think one thing that does happen for people is just not knowing how to uh, actually put some of these into action. And I'm specifically thinking about supporting sustainable farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people can get behind that. They like the idea, but they don't... If they're shopping at your traditional supermarket, wh- what do they do? Like, what do you go look for? And <clears throat> understandably, I think that is difficult. I mean, there's a couple of shorthand things you can look for, but I, I wouldn't say it's getting us to if the ideal in terms of sustainable farming. So sure, you can look for things like organic certifications and fair trade certifications and things like that. And that's helpful if you can do that. Uh Farmers markets, things like that, obviously. So that's one big one is just not knowing how to put into action. And then the second is aligned kind of with what you were saying and minimizing um, animal products in particular. Uh, A lot of people, I mean, I think for various reasons um, are not sure how to do that. I mean, when people think about how to build a meal in the United States, it contains usually a substantial amount of some sort of animal product. So when you say, try to build a meal without it, they don't really know what to eat or how to do it. They're worried about, like you said, certain nutrient deficiencies, what's going to happen? Am I going to be satisfied? So there's a whole kind of learning curve with that and knowing how to implement it. Um, And kind of the uh, offshoot of that one is getting caught up in fad trends that I would say actively uh, are are taking them in a direction that's going to harm the food system. So I mean, a lot of uh, can you give an f- can you give an example? <clears throat> yeah, especially in the fitness community. I mean, there'll be certain styles of eating, um, like ketogenic eating, for example, certain types of, kind of ancestral paleo eating. I mean, I think I, I I should state. Hopefully, it's clear at this point. I don't necessarily think there's one specific diet that's ideal for everybody in all situations. I think there's a lot of individuality with eating and that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, With that said, I don't necessarily think a lot of the dietary patterns that are actively encouraging people to eat as many animal products as they can uh, are a, a good thing for their health or a good thing for our entire food system. So if somebody's caught up in that trend, really believing in that. And then you ask them to minimize animal products and find their minimal effective dose. That's, uh, it's hard to reconcile those two. It is hard. And if somebody has been eating a certain way and they've felt success, whether it was weight loss or energy or no, you know, digestive issues. And I'm not saying that that correlates to like a ketogenic diet, but 
And then they try something that's like more plant-based and there's no animals and they're really gassy. It's really easy to just jump ship and be like, I felt so much better here as opposed to looking at that there's many kind of strings on the Lilliputian, you know, it's not just that you would make that adjustment or that if you felt really good eating all that, it's going to be good for you long-term. You know, there's, I think that um, the diet is, doesn't have to be complicated, but it is complex. And I think it's important to recognize that, that um, you don't have to just go from one end of the spectrum to the other but also you have to have a willingness to realize like there's a lot of other things that might might have made you feel really great when you were just eating keto and it might have been just that would have been great for a month and after that things would have started to deteriorate what are your thoughts about that in terms of like when people have their ideas about like well I felt really good when I was eating this way and I'm just going to stick with it yeah i mean a, a general pattern that i see among human beings uh, is is the inertia <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And really getting it's hard to kind of find the nuance in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So I, I I teach a college class and we dig into these food systems issues and a lot of students um they're usually eating a lot of animal products and then they want to go to eating zero animal products. And they have a hard time kind of understanding any of the middle ground. And I think when you're experimenting with your own uh, dietary patterns over the years, and they could change over the years. That it it's okay to take small steps, kind of in the in between the two ends of the spectrum. Uh, and animal products are probably the prime example of that. I mean, I there are a lot of things I really like about uh, vegan and vegetarian eating, but I don't necessarily think that's the way that everybody has to eat. And eating an ounce or two of meat per day is a lot different than eating a half pound per day. And not only for your own health and how you're going to feel, but for all these other issues we're talking about in the food system collectively. So it it's not, it again, it's not like the quick vegan eater or quick label like vegetarian eater. So it's hard to kind of make sense of in our minds, but being willing to explore some of those um, nuanced areas with eating can be really important. And with that, would you recommend things like focus more on what you're putting on your plate than what you're taking away, like add on more, you know, whole food, variety of vegetables, carbohydrates in the form of, you know, whether it's potatoes, rice, or things that you've been told are good for you, add on more of those and, and then subtly take away some of those other things. I think sometimes the kind of taking away is what people hyper-focus on. Definitely. This, I mean, scarcity mindset is a is a really big issue in the world of food. I mean, that's kind of how we handle <laughs> health in this country with magazines and um, websites and things like that. It's all about subtraction and restriction and limits and all that kind of stuff. So I do, I really love the idea of adding things in because we need to collectively add things in. We don't eat a lot of vegetables. We don't eat a lot of fruits. We don't eat a lot of beans, nuts and seeds, whole grains, all the foods that seem to be pretty supportive of all these things. And generally, I mean, if you start to do that, it can be pretty satisfying and you start to miss the other things quite a bit less. So um, I, would, I hate to do this, but I think this is, you know, what people are craving is like, what are five sources of food? And they, it could be a specific one, but what are five that you really high, highly recommend people 
you know, trying to get into their diet, maybe not all at once, but they have so much bang for their buck in terms of macronutrients or um, just overall nutrition that you might be eating yourself. Yes. Oh, I have so many. Uh, I know. I'll give you, I'll give you a few. You can go more than five. I'll give you, I'll give you five. Um, okay. uh, I'll, I'll start with lentils. Um, lentils are extremely nutrient dense and the beautiful thing about lentils, so they, they are considered a pulse and that's in the legume family. And when you grow legumes, uh, they bring the nitrogen from the air into the soil. And so it acts like a natural source of fertilizer for other crops to grow. So they're, they're wonderful, ecologically speaking, generally consuming them is, is good for our health and, and minimizing disease risk as well. So I'd definitely say lentils, explore different types of lentils. Uh, another one I would say would be oats. I really like oats. Farmers can plant them as a cover crop, which is really good for soil as well. Plus they're uh, very nutritious and satisfying. Third, I would say buckwheat. Buckwheat is another good cover crop. Uh, we don't consume a lot of it in the US. Really good source of magnesium. Uh, fourth, I would say hemp seeds. Uh, extremely sustainable, low chemical input, low water input crop. Um, really high in protein, high in omega-3 fats. Definitely those four. What would be number five? Do you have a fifth one to add? I was going to say, is there a fruit or vegetable that you would add to that? Oh yeah, that makes sense. I should probably focus <laughs> on those two groups. I don't know. Um, um, what's a good uh, kind of unique fruit or vegetable for somebody to explore? Um, I would say like yeah. sweet potatoes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a know, good one. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Let's go with... Uh, that's, so tubers are, are really uh, ecologically friendly to grow. Um, don't require a lot of chemical inputs generally, don't require a lot of water inputs. And they also provide a lot of nutrients and energy. So that's one of the things you'll run into sometimes in the ecological eating world is that if you're spending all these resources growing things like lettuce or other leafy greens, they're great and rich in micronutrients, but they don't have a lot of energy uh, mm -hmm. calories. So if you if you can grow a lot of things like tubers um, that provide a, a decent amount of energy, that's that's efficient. That's good for us. So yeah, let's that's we'll yeah they're packed potatoes. they're packed with nutrition and they're also great sources of fiber. You know, I think uh, people are lacking a lot of fiber. If you have if you have any kind of um, digestive issues, yeah, check that out. Okay, so let's talk about your book, Swole Planet. Okay, swole as the only time I've heard swole is in the CrossFit world. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with CrossFit or is this no? That's great. Um, uh, I, not directly. I, so swole, I love the word swole. So it, it is a word, kind of a word used in the bodybuilding world, and it's about. Um, I think of it as building a a strong and resilient body, building a a muscular body, and the side meaning of that is building a strong and resilient planet as well. So building a strong body and a strong planet, swole planet. Love it. So what um, what kind of things can we find in that book? It, we uh, Everything we have talked about today, I, I mentioned and go into in even more depth uh, in the book. I have a section about status update on planet Earth, kind of where things stand with what's happening in, with biodiversity and ecosystems. 
And then I go into depth with those five dietary adjustments I mentioned earlier. I have a chapter about movement and some of the adjustments we can make with movement. I have a year of workouts that you could try. Um, you could do it at gyms or at home. I also have a few different yoga videos recorded in there for you to try. And then I have big lifestyle adjustments that we can make um, even beyond just movement and nutrition as well. So it, I tried to make it a pretty comprehensive uh, resource overall. That sounds amazing. So where can people find that? Uh, RyanDandrews.com. And that's where you'll find the book. You can also find uh, anything, any more than you wanted to know about me there too, probably. Well, there's a lot to know. You have an impressive background. And, and I just love how you have really integrated these two things that are so that have so much in common and they should be integrated, but this idea of movement and, and how we eat and these food systems and how we act, because when we are, you know, when we're buying things, when we're purchasing things, when we're volunteering, all these are forms of action and some might seem more passive than others, but they all contribute in some way to the well being and the strength or the lack of strength of, of the planet. And I, I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to, you know, try to be our best and brightest and, and do that in a way that's also contributing to the health of our mother earth. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. I mean, br- bridging the gap between the fitness world that I have a, a fondness towards and the sustainability world. I mean, that's really uh, the sweet spot right now for me. And I think, like you said, I think we can do people in the fitness world, I think can, can do quite a bit more. So I'm excited to see what happens. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today, Ryan. It was such a honor to talk to you and learn about your, you know, really amazing journey and work that you're doing. Yeah. You have a, you have a great energy. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And for all of you, as always, I'm pulling for you. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.